Okay. Let's, let's try this again. How am I doing? There we go. Am I fired up here, Pat? Yes, that sounds like I am. A couple other things that you might need to know. There is one bathroom upstairs. It's that way that Troy and Eric and Louie are at. The others are downstairs. That's important to know. <coughs> and I'm undoing my sleeves like I'm going to pick up a dry erase marker, and I, I don't have one. This was a very odd Sunday for me after, my goodness, almost 13 years of the same routine on Sunday. This was completely different. It was very odd for me to deal with all of it. I, I, I had no idea what to do, and I did my lesson like I always do on the same day, and I got up today, and I had no urgency at all. I, I had just kind of hung out. I had a smoothie, some toast. I played with the dogs, didn't I? I took the dogs out. I, I mean, I'm completely, completely helpless. So this will be a big uh, thing for me to figure out. Okay, here we go. November 8, 2009, lecture discussion number nothing. Nothing because, again, I'm not yet prepared to return to Zechariah 11 and Matthew 12 and Revelation 17, 8, which would be number seven in that series for those of you keeping track of the series. So this is just something I'm throwing in. It's a transitory sermon, and we're going to have a couple of these, as a matter of fact, and this is a very good place for me to insert what I want to insert as you know, those of you who were here last week where we pretty much just bombed out the service to talk about this event today, uh, I began at the very end to bring up biblical holism versus the traditional or the orthodox radical dualism. When I say traditional and orthodox, I mean exactly that. Radical dualism is the traditional view. It's the Council of Chalcedon. It's the Council of Constantinople. It's the traditional orthodox view of the church. So when you have somebody come to you and say, well, he's a biblical holist, you will know immediately that he is going against the fathers, if you will, the apostolic fathers of the entire church history. And so uh, this particular movement has, uh, has begun to take hold now. Primarily, in my view, it's because of its melding with the evolutionary scientific community. Uh, Christians have a tendency to want to do that. They want to belong to the scientific community. And the scientific community thinks what of that? They think we're idiots. They think anybody that wants to join them that's Christian is a fool. They think our beliefs are foolish. They are very, very strong in how they feel towards us. So when you want to join someone that hates you, you need to ask yourself, what is in it for you? Why are you leading yourself this way? What are you doing? So this, this biblical holism has this ingredient of cessation of existence, has this monistic philosophical bent to it that is identical to evolutionary atheism. So whenever you begin to talk about biblical holism, um, it's a discussion that brings along with it Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, of course, I asked you to look at that last week. I said that was your assignment uh, over the week, uh, to come uh, prepared to discuss Hebrews 10. And then I wrote all this stuff expecting to get to Hebrews 10, and I did not get to Hebrews 10, so there will not be a test today on Hebrews 10. Those of you who are not prepared, big sigh of relief. Again, still. But if you're going to do Hebrews 10, and we're going to do Hebrews 10, that's going to drag us in, uh, Hebrews 10 drags us into the five warnings of the book of Hebrews because Hebrews 10 is the fourth of the five warnings. So to try to study the book of Hebrews without knowing that it is a series of five warnings, it's a series of five stop signs or yellow alarms, watch yourself. You, there's some significant issues here for you. If you don't know that about the book of Hebrews, if you don't know it's designed in that uh, warning system, then it'll be difficult for you to understand because it is a complex uh, uh, book by Paul. Notice how I said Paul because I have the Paul position that it's his 12th letter. Anyway, biblical holism has to distort. Frankly, it has to do it on purpose. It has to intentionally misrepresent the meaning and the context 
of the book of Hebrews, specifically Hebrews 10. They attack Hebrews 10. That's why you have to bring them together. In order, they do it in order to maintain any semblance of rationality with respect to their concept, with respect to their interpretation. So, how come it's gaining so much power now? How come it's showing up so much? And I'll define it here in a minute for those of you who weren't here last week. How come the church community wants to embrace this uh, this biblical holism? Primarily, it comes from where? What church brings it up? Seventh-day Adventists. The leading, and this is a hard thing to say, the leading Bible scholars of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. That's hard to say. It really is. <laughs> those are not things that we say very often. But sadly, there are very, very many within the church community who are anxious to interpret Hebrews 10 unsoundly, speciously, purposely so, because it suits their agenda and it fits into the biblical holism agenda. Why are they doing it? Why do churches do this? Why do churches take something that is unsound and teach it as if it is? Why? What's their point? Yeah, well, money. They want money. How do they get money? What? Well, no, they get money by getting control of you. If I get control of you, if I make you think that somehow you're dependent on me, especially for your salvation, offerings go way up, baby. I start to score now. And that's what it's about. It's a control-based agenda. That's often the case of those in authority. Uh, when you deal with the Seventh-day Adventists, and I'm not trying to say they're unsaved, I believe they are unsaved, but they have a law a works and grace position. They really do. They love their works. They love their legalism. They love their judgmental elitism. And that goes hand in hand with what we're going to talk about. Seeking power over others is what this discussion ultimately comes about. And Mark's right. They want to be able to say, we know something that you don't. We're right and you're wrong. And if we're right and you're wrong, what should you do? You better join us or you're intentionally wrong. And if you're intentionally wrong, then what's your problem? Oh, my goodness. If I'm a legalist, you're going to lose your salvation. In any event, we're going to take on biblical holism today for what it is. Is it going to be a fun, laughing sermon like last week? Is the pastor going to be funny today? No. No, he's not. He's not. My goodness, i got this thing on me. How can I be funny? But it's going to be very difficult. It's a system that needs to be discussed. You need to know it because it shows up every day. It's all over the church community now. And it's a system founded in error that then spawns more error. So, and every day, I think, if I had to ask myself, what comes up every day for me almost? Uh, Creation evolution comes up every day for me. Part of it is because I'm known for that. Um... The, the con men that come through the televangelism system that steal money from people that think they're doing things that they're not doing. I get that every day. Then I get progressive creationism. Progressive creationism leads me into a discussion of philosophy. Philosophy leads me to biblical holism. So I end up in biblical holism probably fifth on the list. And those who adhere to it will say that their system is not in error. In fact, they're, they're, they're going to declare their positions are pure and holy. And those on the other side, the dualists, are propagating a deadly heresy. I'll quote that from one of them. They're saying that uh, what, what I'm going to do, radical dualism, is a deadly heresy. And by the way, this in itself is something that is seized upon by the slackers in the church. What I mean by that is it's a complex fight. And I get this all the time, too. It's a complicated fight. This is difficult. I've got to understand radical dualism, which takes me into Greek philosophy. And then I've got to separate whether or not Greek philosophy has influenced Christian traditional thinking, or is it actually biblical? Is the doctrine of immortality in the Bible? Is it? If it is, where is it? Is the separation of the soul and the body at death in the body? I'm sorry, in the Bible, if, it's, if it is, where can you defend it? Biblical holism says it's not there, and you can't defend it. There is no separation of the body and the soul to death. What do they say? That when you die, what? You cease to exist. 
you, you go into extinction. And then God resurrects who? Them. The biblical holiness. And they're more pure than you. You are unpure. You're going to cease to exist unless what? You pay, yeah. But how do you pay? You join them. Okay, that's how it all ties together. So, though I get this too when I get into these discussions. I call them the slackers in the church. Because the slackers, and don't take it personal unless it applies to you, and then what? Take it personal. <laughs> the slackers in the church, they're the ones who never want to learn anything. They don't want to learn anything. They tell me all the time, it's too hard. I can't learn it. And everybody disagrees. That guy's really smart, and he says this. This guy's really smart, and he says that. I can't tell the difference, so that's my excuse for never trying to figure it out. And I go through life what? Dumb. And I'm happy about that. And so this is, when I get into these discussions like this, this, is, uh, this comes up to me all the time, the wisdom avoidance system. And you know that I quote Psalm 122 all the time. How long, you simple ones, will you love the simple? That is one of the admonitions of God in, the, in Proverbs. What's he saying to, you, to us? He is saying, how long are you going to be satisfied not knowing anything? How long are you going to rationalize, oh, that I can't learn that? How long are you going to be in wisdom avoidance? He calls them simple ones, the lovers of the simple. Simple ones, the Bible calls us that do that or calls those who do that. In other words, for simple ones is what? Yes, simpletons. How long will you be a simple-minded simpleton? How long will you love simple, foolish things? When will you want wisdom? Those who will shun the effort to understand, offering instead the excuse that the truth cannot be determined, they usually say something to the effect, who can tell, who can figure it out? These Bible scholars disagree with those Bible scholars. Why should I bother to try to learn it? Why should I take a side? Why should I investigate it? Why should I study? Why should I work? And so I respond to them all the time. Is it your position that you can't determine the truth? Did God give us truth and it's undeterminable? If you can throw out part of it, why not throw out all of it? It's too hard. If any part of it's too hard, how much of it's too hard? Are you a relative moralist? Everybody can have their own little piece of the truth. There's be truth for everybody. We don't have to have truth. My truth doesn't matter. Your truth, let's all just be truth and hold hands, kumbaya, play another song. It starts in G, goes to C, goes to D, back to G. Are you a universalist? Everybody gets to God any way they can. Are there many, many truths? Every person can have his own truth, whatever he so desires. Are there many gods or many ways to the one true God? See, that's where you end up. When you come to me and say, I can't figure it out, I won't figure it out, it's too hard. It can't be determined. God didn't prepare me, didn't allow me, hasn't shown me how, so I don't have to care. I don't have to study. I don't have to investigate. I don't have to try. I don't have to work. I want you to stop being a phony if you fall into that category. See, what bugs me about the political process is that no one ever tells me what they really think. I want people to tell me what they really think. I want them to say, I don't want to learn it because I don't want the consequences or I don't care. Either one. Just admit that you love the simple. By the way, what do you think is simple? Pick something that you love. You heard me say last week. Love people and use things, not the other thing, not the other way around, right? Don't love things and use people. Love people, use things. Do you love a thing? If you do, whether it be a guitar or a set of drums or your car, your $365 softball bat, whatever it is that you love, what do you think God thinks of that? Yeah, he thinks that's foolishness, loving foolishness. So, 
I would suggest that you begin to say, I'm going to be obedient to God's commandment to seek wisdom. Proverbs 4, 7. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. So if you're somebody, and look, we have uh, the lovely Annabelle, who's not here so I can pick on her, said she would be here. And she didn't make it because she's working nights, and she has lots of excuses, and she's tired, and it's a hard job, and she loves to get things, particularly shoes, Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the same shoe in a different color. The same blouse in a different color. The exact same blouse. It's all the same. And then she strews them on the floor. And uh, that's her. She's paying rent, sort of. Sort of. But she loves her shoes. If I threw her shoes away, she'd be very unhappy. Nate loves his guitars. He's got 18 guitars. In all your getting, if you're someone that wants to get things, you want to get. God says, get wisdom, get understanding. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. What's the implication of that? Happy is the man who has wisdom. What's the implication? Unhappy is the man who doesn't have any wisdom. He doesn't know it. And that's why I've gotten to study addictive thinking, because addictive thinking is actually the opposite of the truth for the addict. And it's very difficult, it takes a professional therapist, to get into the mind of an addictive thinker and get him to understand that he's thinking opposite. When I was teaching high school, most of you know, whereas Katrina, most of you know that I would tell those high school boys specifically, there's never a time in your life where you're more dumb than now. You're at the apex of your stupidity. You are perfect, absolute stupid at 16. You cannot get any better than stupider, or or you can't get any stupider than you are right now. And that's a wonderful thing to know. They should all cheered. They were on the downward slope. It's going to get better for them, right? None of them believed me. They all hated me for it. Every time I say that, they all come up afterwards and they say, you're wrong. And tell about when. See, everybody here knows. You can think back. I can't remember. I can't think back because that was, that was 20 years ago for me when I was 16. Okay? But most of you can think back and remember how dumb you were at 16. You were absolutely, pathetically dumb. How do I know that? Because I've raised three kids and I was 16 20 years ago. Let me keep repeating that. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Therefore, unhappy are the lovers of the simple. They are thinking backwards. They are absolute backward thinkers. That's what addiction does to you, is it makes you think the opposite of what's true. I tell those 16-year-old boys, if you could do this. Now, this was, okay, this was uh, 1981 when I last gave this lecture, I would tell those, maybe in the late 80s, because I was at Grace Christian School then, but I used to repeat it all the time, if you could just look at what you're thinking and do the opposite, whatever it was, you would be ahead of the game, especially if you were age 16. The same thing's true if you could put the same energy that you put into getting things and loving things and put it into getting wisdom, you would stop being miserable. You don't know that your loving of the simple is making you miserable. That is why today, what are we doing? That's right, biblical holism versus radical dualism. Proverbs 4, 5, get wisdom. He screams it. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Proverbs 4, 5 is a commandment. So you can say to me, I'm ruining your life for you. Eventually you stand in front of the judge. Saved or unsaved, you stand in front of the judge. You're not judged for your salvation, but what will you get? Yeah, a beating, that's right, a miserable beating. If you are lovers of the simple. And I'm ruining it for you because he's going to play this back. He's going to say, somebody warned you to get wisdom, and you intentionally said, I don't want it. 
I don't want it because it's too hard. I don't want it because of the consequences. I like what I'm doing. It is the opposite of what I want to do, and I don't care. I want to be the opposite. I want to be a 16-year-old teenage boy for the rest of my life. Is he going to let you do that? God? Maybe. My, uh, my life says that he will uh, run you off the side of a cliff. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. I, I spent hours on that. Actually, I just made it up now. But, uh, cliff side. Okay, yay. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. There's a few that were slow in the back on the tables. That's why we let them sit on the tables. Why do they sit by the tables? Do they have food there? No. Do they have coffee? A couple of them. Why do we really make them sit on the back tables? So their drool doesn't get all over the carpet. That's right. That's exactly right. So we shall follow the path of Hebrews 5.14. This is what it says. But solid food belongs to those who are, are of full age, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We're going to follow that path. Let me pull the the key words out for you. Reason, exercise, what we call that. Yes, push-ups. Reason and push-ups, and that gives you discernment. When I say push-ups, I mean when you work at this, when you... When you exercise your senses, when you study and you care and you use your reason that God gives you, he will give you discernment as well. And you will understand the mysteries, the deep things of Scripture, the truths that are there. And it is a process. He doesn't just unzip your brain and give it to you. He makes you work at it because it's like anything else. If it is easy, what will you do with it? You'll just discard it. It isn't easy. It's your choice. You can reason, you can exercise your senses, you can get discernment, or you can remain a baby. You can go into life, you can go into this world, it's a knife fight. Okay, it's a gunfight, and you're out there with a baby bottle squirting people. You're going to come back in a bag. So that's your choice. Go out dumb, throwing milk at people, pouring it on their feet while they're shooting you. Or you can work. And get wisdom. Okay, last Sunday, at the very end, I put the terms on the board. Imagine that I'm putting, I'm putting the terms on the board. Went over the definitions. And we should go back over the definitions today of biblical holism because of what? Yes, the one visitor that is here. For his sake. Biblical holism. Defined. It's so-called because they believe that they're the biblical view. So they put biblical in front of their view. That's, as I said last week, not much different than full gospel. Full gospel chapel is saying to you, what? You have a quarter gospel, maybe an eighth gospel, but I have all the gospel. So I wanted to change the name from Cliffside to all gospel Cliffside. Infinite gospel Cliffside. We have everything. You have nothing, Cliffside. But they call it biblical holism because that's what they're doing. They're trying to make you think, especially if you are unlearned, have no discernment, you're out there with your baby bottle squirting milk. They want you to think that they are the ones that have this figured out. So that's what they do. But biblical holism is so-called, and it's not, it's whole, W-H-O-L. It's the whole. They believe that the body, the soul, and the spirit are one inseparable whole, that we are not dualistic, which is that we are two components, if you will. Don't I know we got into the triad discussion last week, but we have an immaterial or a metaphysical component, a spiritual component, and we have a physical component. The biblical holists say, no, we are one separate or inseparable whole something that cannot be divided. The radical, traditional, orthodox dualist says what? When does the body and the soul divide from itself? When does the spirit soul separate from the body? What do we say? Yeah, death. Not the biblical holists. They say that the entire body, soul, spirit dies and ceases to exist. And in that sense, it's fundamentally, it's monism. It's monistic. Okay? 
And that's why they're doing it, frankly, because it allows them to get into the evolutionary community, community and they think they're respected for this. <clears throat> okay. However, along with the monistic philosophers, which are the evolutionary atheists, and again, you hear me say it all the time. You got a problem with evolution? The first thing you do is you don't argue it on on where blind salamanders came from. If you want to know where blind salamanders came from, come see me. I'll answer that. But that's not how you argue with evolutionists. You argue with the evolutionists on dualism versus monism. You look at the evolutionists and you say, and I actually did this, as you know. I, I got into a debate with a man whose children were there to watch the debate because Daddy was going to defeat the railroad guy. And the first thing I did was say that evolutionists believe that uh, they will cease to exist when they die. And his son yelled out at him, essentially, during that discussion, do we believe that? And I said, tell your son that you believe he's going to cease to exist when he dies. Because that's what you believe. They don't like to do that. You know why? They don't really believe it. They want you to believe it. So don't argue blind salamanders. Don't don't argue whether or not we found hemoglobin in a Tyrannosaurus rex. By the way, have we found hemoglobin in a Tyrannosaurus rex? Yes, we have. That thing is quadrillion zillion years old, but that hemoglobin's still there. Or not. Either either it's not a gigazillion years old, or in fact, uh, maybe the hemoglobin, because as you know, they took the the heme out, and I'm not a I'm not a nurse. And they took the heme out and they injected it in rats, and what did they get? They got antibodies. Okay, so that meant that the rats saw the heme the heme in the from that came out of the Tyrannosaurus rex bone. They saw it as a living thing that they needed to defeat. As a, and it's a fascinating discussion. And that will keep happening, as you know. So, but don't argue that way. That ever works. You'll just go round and round and round and round and round, dust on the moon and all that. And what you really need to do is say, do you believe you're going to cease to exist? Because that's monism. Or do you believe that you have an everlasting, immortal soul spirit? That's traditional orthodox dualism. The biblical holists believe at the death of the physical body, just like the evolutionary atheists, that the soul spirit also dies. Now, they'll give you, they'll grant you that you have a soul spirit. They just say it's dead. That's what makes them a little bit different than most monistic philosophers. They will say to you, yeah, I'll give you a soul spirit because they have to. Why do they have to? They're supposedly Christians. Okay, they are Christians. But why do they have to grant you a soul spirit? Why not just be monistic and say you cease to exist and God finds you later and puts you back together and everything's fine? Why do they want you to have a soul spirit? Because they've got to deal with the book of Genesis. We'll get to that in a minute. But they say the soul spirit dies. And the death of the person results in complete cessation of existence for a period of time. When you die, you cease to exist. Now, that's a wonderful message Sunday morning, right? I can't imagine. Why would you want to believe that, first and foremost? But they do, and that's what they preach. I, 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 just, I just would be... The last funeral I did, um, uh, Car Arena, did she get a hamburger and sneak out no there she is hiding behind becca i did a funeral for uh a, a hubert carlson a funeral for hubert and what did i do car arena in that funeral i said that hubert is not in the urn in the urn is hubert's physical body hubert has gone hubert's consciousness his being his person is immortal what's at question is his destiny but he is immortal. Well, the biblical holists don't say that. They go to funerals and say, he's in the urn. Not only is his body in the urn, but his consciousness, his being, he is in the urn. And he's not existing right now. He has to be re-existed. Okay? So that's how they, why they describe it, by the way. And it's classic conditional immortality. Death, the cessation of existence, of the consciousness of the being, until Christ resurrects them. So Christ will resurrect them. So what's the obvious question now? Will he resurrect you? Because you're going to cease to exist when you die. Is he going to resurrect you? 
And how can you ensure your resurrection? Yeah, you can show up on Sunday, bring chicken, whatever you have to do. And as I said, it's classic conditional immortality because the ones, the biblical holists, are the ones who are resurrected. The other people, well, golly, it's too bad for them. They didn't believe correctly because we believe correctly because we're the biblical holists. The biblical holists phrase the debate intentionally as resurrection or immortality. They say, you believe in the immortality of the soul. We do not. We believe the soul dies and you cease to exist. And so resurrection then is for us. Immortality doesn't exist. So the question becomes not the combining or the recombining of the soul spirit with the resurrected body, but the resurrection of the whole person. And that's why they phrase it, the resurrection or immortality, all their books. That's what they're saying. Well, you can always find a biblical holism book because it always has that title in it, resurrection or immortality. Now, it should be added that there is division among the biblical holism community on some minor points. I won't go over them, but mostly they teach final judgment as annihilation of the unsaved. Because they believe that if you are forever in the lake of fire, what is that? Why is that bad? Why do they hate that so much? Because they do. They don't want that to happen. They do not want eternal punishment, eternal condemnation in the lake of fire for the wicked. They don't want that. Why not? Hmm? Not so much that that be universalism, but they don't they don't want an out that you can get into uh, the Catholics with their purgatory. But what they really want is they believe and they're fervent. They believe that that's unjust. They believe that if I annihilate a wicked person for forever, how long's forever? By the way, there's a clock there. When did I start? Anybody know? I don't know. That's the first time I saw it. Oh, some person in the back knows. When did I start? Do it. Four forty. Okay. So if I go my usual ninety-seven minutes, I'll be able to get through. That's for happy's sake, right there. He's going. Is does he mean it? Does he? Yes, I do. I mean it. They believe that if God punishes the wicked for all eternity, then what is God? Unjust, unfair, sadistic. So they are, that's a classic Isaiah 520, isn't it? Taking he that is pure goodness and calling him evil. In fact, elevating themselves to a position of judgment. If God is going to judge people for all eternity, then something is wrong with that. Something is wrong with God, and I am able to determine that something is wrong with God, so who am I now? I am the judge of God. Wow, I should get a t-shirt, a little hat at least, something on the sleeves. They see eternal punishment as evil and contrary to God's nature and extinction by God of the unredeemed as the proper biblical interpretation. I find that comical, by the way. They say that it is really, really bad to be punished forever, but to have immortality and consciousness that to be evil and punished and wicked and dark forever. That's terrible. That's sadistic. But annihilation, hey, that's a piece of cake. I'm not so sure. Yes, sir. Eventually, yes. Eventually, yes. They, they are, they're very much opposed to the God of the Old Testament in the sense that he's so judgmental. We can't have judgment from God, especially this kind of judgment. We can put the wicked into punishment, but we can't do it for a long time. We've got to do it really short because too much punishment is bad. So we'll put them in, we'll give them a little punishment, and then we'll do what? Thank you for turning that off. Yeah, we'll annihilate them. Did it go off by itself? Wow, that's really high-tech stuff for us. Our idea of turning off the heat is to go over and turn off the heat. I mean, this is automatic. Eventually, yes, because ultimately they're going to say to you that, that they're, they're deciding how long the punishment should be. They will decide. They'll, they'll tell you. If you're just a really bad pastor, you get six months. 
You know, if you you steal a car, you get a year. You know, um, if you uh, disagree with the pastor, well, you get 20, 30 years. But eventually, you're annihilated. I don't particularly care much for the annihilation idea. I see that. There's a lot of people that would. I, I tell you, but that's just me. I, a cessation of existence, I think, is something to be feared. I also think that it is incompatible with Scripture on many levels because I always ask, they'll grant me, won't they, that you have a soul spirit, but it just has to be re- resurrected. And then what do I always ask them? Come on, what do I always ask them? What do I always ask the evolutionist when he tells me, okay, I'll grant you, I don't cease to exist, that I do believe there's a spiritual component to you, that you have a soul and you have a body. I still believe in evolution, so what do I ask them? Yeah, how do I evolve a soul spirit? What is the soul spirit made out of? What is the process of evolution that uh, that gives me a soul? Does it start out as a little tiny soul? And then a single cell soul? And then it becomes... A complex little soul? Where does the soul come from? What is it made out of? And as you know, that trans, um, uh, transmission of being is where we're at now. What is the, how does the soul, how is it transmitted to us? Um, is your soul different than your parents' soul? I assume everyone here was born. Good. Thank you for raising your hands. Never raise your hands here. Shout out questions and duck, right? But never raise your hand. How did your being, how did your soul spirit get transmitted to you? What is the process of the transmission of the soul? Everyone ready to answer that? Get out your papers. Ready? Send me your essay. You have to be able to understand, I have to be able to explain how your soul was transmitted. Well, that's exactly what they don't do. We'll get to Genesis in just a second. They have no interest in explaining Genesis at all. Or they do like Ecclesiastes, and you know I did an Ecclesiastes sermon. That's why I take this so or series. That's why I take it so personal. Did it come on? Okay. Are you cold? It's cold in here. Okay, so we're going to bring up our little electric heaters and our big cords and our blankies and everything. Huh? So we're keeping all of that stuff. I was all excited to come up here with a, in a hot room where I can make you sweat. I wanted to see sweat just before you fell asleep for a change. People shivering as they sleep is really disconcerting. Anyway, they see eternal punishment as contrary to God's nature. They think it's evil. They see extinction, extinction, cessation of existence, annihilation is good. They believe that's the biblical interpretation. And whereas the literal dualist, that's me, so that you know, we see death as the separation of the soul spirit from the body, the soul spirit being the metaphysical, the soul spirit being the supernatural component, and the body being the natural or the physical component. We see death, the separation of those two, resurrection, the rebuilding, if you will, the changing, the transformation of the body and the renewed soul put inside. Okay, a medical process. Resurrection, then, is the rejoining of those two components. The body dies, but the consciousness is immortal and continues. It is, as I said, the destination of the person that is at stake here. But the consciousness is not in question. And that we call the intermediate state. The biblical holist says there is no intermediate state. There is no being with Christ in heaven. There's just cessation of existence for everybody. And God looks around and says, okay, I'll resurrect that guy and that guy and her and leave the rest of them in annihilation. Some of them say, no, he resurrects them and then he puts them in lake of fire and then he annihilates them. I want to know why, why, what's the... What's the uh, what's the reason for that? And they'll say what? We've got to have some justice. Can't just let people sin and get annihilated. That ain't fair. We've got to resurrect them, beat them for a while, and then annihilate them. Yeah, that's our view. Okay? You liking that, are you? Okay. They're, biblical holism, they're, they're certain there is no intermediate state. Okay. So, immediately we approach this conflict by asking what we always ask, does it matter what the pastor is saying today? Does this matter 
Do you need to worry about this? Do you need to care about it? Do you need to study? If so, why? Why would biblical holism be a problem? What's wrong if you believe it? If you're a conditional immortality guy and you you think you cease to exist and you get annihilated, uh, conditional view of the lake of fire versus the traditional view, what's wrong with that? Is it a salvation issue? No, it's not. There's saved people that are wrong. That's okay. How do we tell that they're wrong? Yeah, they disagree with me. That's right. That's how we spot them. Okay. Why would radical dualism, if disproved, be so devastating to Christians? Because they'll tell you that once I disprove your radical dualism, you will be devastated as a Christian. And that last question, by the way, why would we be devastated? That's pretty much the easiest because of something Mike said. If biblical holism is right, then I am throwing out Genesis. I am throwing out the creation account. Genesis creation is at stake in this debate. If you don't understand that yet, don't worry, because this series will go on for months and months and months and months till I've bludgeoned you all into oblivion. Monism, cessation of existence, is the cornerstone of the evolutionary atheistic philosophy. Embracing monism is seeding the supernatural element. It's giving up. It's ignoring the metaphysical. It's ignoring ignoring the metaphysical implications of subatomic diameter, and we can't do that, can we? That's right. We'll end up saying Christ is not God, and that's on page eight here. If we could just get Mike to settle down for just a second. <laughs> that is a. Let me just deviate. That is absolutely the characteristic of this. Is they they destroy. Now, why do I hate that? so much. Now you know. They begin to tear apart the deity of Christ here. And yes, we are headed back to quantum physics. Everybody rejoice with me. Huzzah. Yay. Yay. Three people faking it in the back. I, okay. Let's see what the Bible says. And then what are we going to do? We're going to reason. We're going to work. And we're going to get discernment over which interpretation is evil. And how do we define what is evil? The interpretation that Disagrees with me. That's right. Okay. Is there biblical evidence of the doctrine of immortality? I asked that, and for happy's sake, I'm on page eight and we're in the home stretch. So here we go. Is there biblical evidence of the doctrine of immortality? I like visitors. Where is it if there is? Well, let's start someplace. Let's go to Genesis 25:8, and I'll get some more medicine. I noticed that you leave these in your office, and that is a terrible, terrible mistake. Did you you have a refrigerator? Oh, ice machine downstairs? Do you drink your soda in the middle of your sermon? Because I always have a bad throat. There we go. Okay, it's working. They've asked me to disguise the can sometimes. Do they ask you that? No, you have a McDonald's thing, don't you? Okay, brand loyalty. Can you see the soda there? Oh, cool. Okay, 25-8. Here we go. This is going to be an adjustment. Then Abraham... Breathed his last. How many of you have the old King James? What's it say? Gave up his ghost. That's why we love the old King James a lot, because that's more accurate. Then Abraham gave up his ghost and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Okay, now let's go down to 2517. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he gave up his ghost or breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. See the trend? I have two people that have physically died, they says in the old King James, and I believe more accurately, gave up their ghost, gave up their spirit soul, and were gathered to his people. Obviously, the biblical holist will say, no, he breathed, his breath went away, and he died. So we have to end up in a debate over which is more correct and where do we go to decide that. That's right. Back to the Hebrew. And here we are again at Nefesh Kaya, right? Okay. At contest is this phrase, gathered to his people. What does it mean exactly, gathered to his people? What is implied? What are the implications of gathered to his people? Obviously, the two sides 
completely, totally disagree. They're absolute opposite. The orthodox dualist says it means, duh, gathered to his people. He went to where his people are a long, long time ago. Where's Eric? Oh, it's off again. Where's Eric? Hi, Eric. Long time ago, we were in a race, Lori and I, and the race was organized by Happy, and you got a prize, and the race was. See, now I, I see people, and it's not in my notes, and i got to go for another 45 minutes, so this is a little filler here. The race was, is the child ran, and then he ran back, and Eric was four, wasn't he? And he was really fast. He would run and come back, and then the mother would pick up the child, and she would run. And it was a relay, and come back. And then the husband would pick up the mother and the child, right? And just you? What did we do with Eric? Were we disqualified? No. Well, then the father would pick up the mother, and they would. How did we do? And Eric is down there. He wants to run because he knows what. What do you know? It's a prize. We're going to win. Man, there's nobody going to beat us. And he's screaming, I have no people. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? No. He's screaming. We never forgot it. I have no people. That's very sad. So obviously, he's four years old. Did we slaughter them? Did we? Yes, we did. Would we slaughter them now? No, no, no. The picking up part we could do, it's that running part that would be that would be a problem. But anyway, Eric at four knew what people were, gathered to his people. The Jews know what this means. They think we're so silly, dumb Gentiles. This clearly means gone to be where his ancestors, his family is, where those who have gone before him. That's why the Orthodox Gulas says the body remains. There's a separation. He gave up his spirit. He breathed his last same thing, was gathered to his people, those of his family that had gone before him. And note the order, physical death. Physical death, then the gathering. Same for Ishmael. Same for Isaac, Genesis 35, 29. Same for Jacob, 49, 29, 49, 33. That's for the people that pay all that money for the CDs. And so immediately the Orthodox traditional dualist sees the New Testament complement of this, the gathering of Abraham to his people, the gathering of Abraham's sons to Abraham, right? Where's the New Testament complement being gathered to Abraham? Where your body is left behind, but your spirit is gathered to Abraham. Where is that? Come on. Hmm? Who said Luke 16, rich man and the Pharisee, I'm sorry, the rich Pharisee and Lazarus the beggar? Let me read that. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham. The, now, was his body carried by the angels to Abraham? What was carried by the... The biblical holists will insist there is no doctrinal immortality of the soul spirit in the Bible. There is none. Now, that makes perfect sense, by the way, the, the angels taking Lazarus to be with Abraham. Makes perfect sense to us dualists. Lazarus the person, Lazarus the consciousness, Lazarus the being, Lazarus the soul spirit is carried, is gathered to his people by who? Who's going to carry a spirit person? A spirit being. The spirit beings carry the spirit people to Abraham. That makes perfect sense to us. Who's telling the story of Lazarus and the rich Pharisee? Who's telling that story? Jesus Christ is. That's the Lord God Almighty. He's the one describing this event. He's the one explaining it. What is he? He's omniscient. He would know. So far, it seems pretty obvious. Case closed. But, oh, no, the biblical holists will argue. You will wonder, what will they say? Well, this is what they will say. They say, gathered to your people does not mean carried by angels, to where Abraham is. Yes, sir. Now, remember, you got somebody back here that's really getting annoyed with how long we're going. Oh, oh, stop it. Stop it. Let's see. Here, 
Page 10. Let's bring Genesis 15:15 back into the discussion. I'm trying to hurry. I know I went to the Eric story. <laughs> but he's absolutely right. This is a Genesis 15:15 issue. Very important. We'll get there in a second for the rest of you. Okay. This thing hurts my ear too, Pat. I got to get rid of it. What can we do? Okay, I'm on it, Pat. Thank you. I'll hurry now. Is the buffet ready, Jack? Okay, we're moving out now. So far, as I said, it seems pretty obvious. Case should be closed, but the biblical holists have an argument. They say, gathered to your people does not mean carried by angels to where Abraham means. It means being buried in the family cemetery. That's what it means. They're absolutely positive of that. There's a problem with that with, that with Abraham. What's the problem? Yeah, his his family didn't accompany him when he, they weren't anywhere near him except for his wife. But his 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 father never got out of Haran. So uh, maybe he did, but most of his family back in Haran. So he didn't. The family cemetery was not anywhere near him, and that's the case with most of them. Gathered to your people, to the Jews is obvious. It's in all of their history, and they also say that Luke 16 is. Just a what? They call it the parable. Do not cede the word parable to Luke 16 because you'll get in trouble. It is not the parable. You won't hear me do that unless I've made a horrible mistake. It is not the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And they say it is just a parable, and the details of any parable do not necessarily have any significance. They'll go stronger. None of the parables matter. None of the details matter. I actually enjoy that last part. The details, I quoted that. The details of a parable do not necessarily have any significance. The, who told the, sto- or the, the story? The true story of Lazarus and the Pharisee. Who told the story? I can't take any more questions. I'm sorry. Come see me afterwards and we'll battle. Who told the story? These are the words of God. This is the words of Jesus Christ. And to say they don't have any significance or any meaning is insanity. That is opposite thinking. You are now might as well be an addict. You have, you have abandoned wisdom for simple and foolish things. Good luck with that at the throne, by the way. Hey, your words that you uttered, that you had recorded, that you inspired men to write for all eternity don't have any significance. I make fun of them for that, but that is a ringing, clanging characteristic of the biblical holism movement is to degrade the godhood of Jesus Christ. Anyway, they further state about Luke 16, 19 through 31, that parables are never intended to be interpreted figuratively. Or, I'm sorry, that all parables are intended to be interpreted allegorically or figuratively, and that the rich man and Lazarus is cessation of existence and because people don't have sight and taste and consciousness and memory and intellect. That's what they will say. Well, that's exactly what he said. You're right. This he's discussing with the Sadducees over their little trick question. He makes certain that they know that he is the God of the living. He is not the God of the ceasing to exist. He is the God of the living. He says it over and over again. I am life. And they will say to you, no, that's not the case. Jesus is merely repeating old Jewish writings. Josephus' description, by the way, of Abraham's bosom is strikingly similar, and it's fun for you to read. You should see that. But they say that's all just fables. It's popular understandings. It's cartoons. It's legends. It's fanciful thinking. And Jesus was capitalizing on the ignorant Jewish people's concept. He was not endorsing those views at all. And I say what to that? Really? What's rule number one? Jesus is God, omniscient God in the flesh. Any position that calls into into question the omniscience of Christ must be cast aside. Would he know what the Jewish people he was talking to thought? And would he say something that is incorrect? No. In order to just kind of speak their language? Did he go around speaking their language? No. Now, Genesis fifteen fifteen. 
Here we go. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers. Again, God is talking to Abraham. Now, as for you, who's you? That's Abraham. What's you made of? As for you, you will go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Notice death going to your fathers. You will go. You will go to your fathers. And then what? Then you're going to be buried. You shall be buried. But first, you're going to go to your father. So what? who are you? You are the one that goes to the father. What gets buried? The body. You. Now we add Job 14.14 14 to the debate. Though I hesitate to call it a debate. It's really not a debate. Because if I say it's a debate, then what do I imply? I imply that the other side has a merit to its argument. I don't want to do that. Job asked the central question. By the way, how far are we in this discussion? Not very far. It's going to get a lot worse for you. 14.14 of Job. Here's what he says. If a man dies, shall he live? Now, your Bible might have again. But you'll notice that the again is what? It's italicized, which means what? It's not in the text. It was added by somebody that thought the Bible needed a little bit of help. So cross it out. If a man dies, shall he live? That's what Job is asking. What's Job saying there? Is Will the body separate from the soul spirit? Do you think Job answers the question? Do you think God would ask such a question and not answer it? Because he's having Job write it. And he answers it 19, 25 through 26. <coughs> For I know that my Redeemer lives, that's in a lot of songs, and he shall stand at last on the earth. After my skin is destroyed, that when my flesh is struck off, I shall see God. Now, your Bible might say that in my flesh I shall see God. But hopefully you have a little bit of a explanation over in the margin. The correct interpretation that in my flesh, or that when my flesh is struck off, I shall see God. And it seems to be pretty obvious, doesn't it? Does the biblical holism aside respond to Job 4.14 or 14.14 and 19.25-26? Job is saying, will I live again even though I'm physically dead? Or will I live? Sorry, I said again, I shouldn't have. Will I live? Do I live? Do I have a consciousness that goes on when I'm physically dead? And then he answers it, I know that I, when my flesh is struck off, I shall see God. Do they respond to that? Do you ever see in the biblical holism books, Job 14, 14, do you? No, they don't respond. They also don't respond to the transfiguration, Christ, Moses, and Elijah. Where did Moses and Elijah come from? What are they? They bodily resurrected there. Elijah, he went up in a chariot. Is that the real Elijah? All of Elijah? Well, how's this all work? Nor do they respond to the design of the angelic host. Do the angelic hosts, can they manifest themselves as men and look physical? Yes, they can. Are some of them physical, living creatures, seraphim, cherubim? Yes, they are. What about the rest of the angels? Are they spirit or are they physical? They're spirits. How are they made? Did they evolve? They don't respond to the angelic host. They don't respond to the transfiguration. They don't respond to Job 14, 14 or 19, 25 through 26, nor do they respond to the mystery of the divine indwelling, Colossians 1, 26 through 27. That's why I say to you all the time, you've got to know your 11 mysteries, because this is one that just smacks them, isn't it? Christ in you is the second mystery, the indwelling Christ in you. What happens then to Christ in you when you die physically? Does he die physically too and cease to exist? Makes no sense, does it? Cessation of existence? Silly. What they do respond to is Ecclesiastes 9, Ecclesiastes 3, Ecclesiastes 12, and Hebrews 10. And they make the same error in all three. That's why I want you to study Hebrews 10. That's your assignment. I want you to read Ecclesiastes 9, 3, and 12. Those of you who went through the Ecclesiastes class, you're not going to have any trouble with it. But maybe you will. Maybe you'll read it and go, oh, no, this, this looks like biblical holism is right. 
Can you remember that? Ecclesiastes 3, 9, and 12. Hebrews 10. They make the same error in all three places. I'll help you out. They do not comprehend the importance of the context phrase. What is the importance of the context phrase in Ecclesiastes 9, 3, and 12? What is the context phrase? Come on. Somebody really make me proud of you. Under the sun. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Thank you both. If I had a board, we'd have two A's. Under the sun. What does under the sun mean? That's an earthly reference, see. That's an on-earth reference. They also assail the meaning of living souls. So we're going to have to go back and define nefesh kaya, especially for the new people. How many of the new people, how many new people are there? I don't know. How many of you were not here when I defined nefesh kaya in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3? Okay, see, if you were not here, then um, that's what we'll do again. There's a dozen of you or so. The rest of you who feel so smart and smug... um, They really don't know either. They're anxious for me to do it again anyway. Living soul to us radical dualism people means living soul. Duh, again. As God would define it pre-fall of Adam. Not so to the biblical holism crowd. It means far, far less. So next week, we shall continue this, but with one significant ingredient change, and that will be the dry erase board. And we will get into Hebrews 10. What is the key to understanding Hebrews 10? Knowing that that's Jews physically returning to the city of Jerusalem where they will die in the Roman invasion. Let's, uh, let's rise and be dismissed.